I think you've got to have a variety of people in the room to have the meritocracy, right? Survival of the best ideas. I think this country was built on meritocracy. It's like built on the concept of like, whoever has the best ideas shall win. But I think people need an opportunity to have a seat at the table to have that voice. And so we have seen, especially when we include women and we include different minority groups, that that seems to always affect positively the bottom line when we do that. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Hi, it's Sid Finkelstein, and this is the SIDCast, and on this episode, I talk to Moj Madara. Moj is an entrepreneur, an innovator, and a leader in the beauty industry. She's the CEO of BeautyCon, which is a key connector in the makeup world, operating growing number of uh, namesake beauty blogger festivals, not just for bloggers, but for all sorts of key players in the industry. And these festivals have taken place in LA, in New York, in London, Dallas, Dubai, many other places, and they've attracted more than 10,000 attendees. At least they did before COVID, but that's another story that we will talk about. Moj is an entrepreneur and a CEO. She's an expert in the beauty, wellness, and uh, CPG, which is consumer packaged goods market. And she's currently, as I said, the CEO of BeautyCon, really globally recognized community that she's created for content creators, for celebrities, for fans, for brands. And her job is all about driving that brand vision and its growth initiatives. It's a very creative company, as you're going to hear. And she has assembled something, you know, these major events that they put on. She describes them as equivalent to a sporting event. Men have sports, although many women love sports too. But let's say men have sports. And what the women have, well, they could have this group of people that get together, this community of people that get together, that share ideas, that immerse themselves in the experience. And it's much more than a trade show. They are participants. And that's really kind of uh, interesting. We talk about all that in this uh, episode of the podcast. Moj has spoken to many, many audiences, and she's an active investor, a real expert, especially on Gen Z, as well as millennials. We talk about Gen Z versus millennials and all the discussion about millennials uh, over the last few years. Gen Z has not been discussed as much in the mainstream, but Moj is an expert on Gen Z and who they are and how they think, and that part of our discussion is particularly interesting. She's been named in all kinds of different top magazines and the most creative people list in Fast Company, the Hollywood Reporter's top 25 most powerful digital players, Women's Wear Daily, Digital Power Posse list, Variety, Digital Entertainment Execs to Watch. And so she really has created something pretty amazing. And she's a serial entrepreneur, has done a lot of different things, and has a particular interest in women in business but women creating businesses, women revolutionizing businesses, and diverse women and diversity in general. She connected with me on the podcast from uh, New York, where she lives with her wife, Professor Dr. Roya Rastegar, their son, Neve, and they even have a little dog named Sufi. And I have a little dog named Millie that's actually just a little puppy that's just about four months old, and that's keeping me busy as well. I got to know Moj through Joni Taylor a former student of mine who is just so smart and interesting, an entrepreneur herself in how she thinks and operates. And ever since March, when COVID hit, Joni Taylor and Moj Madara 
and a few other people have convened a group of beauty and wellness leaders once a week for one hour, via Zoom, of course, for a one-hour learning session. I'm not going to share the names of any of the participants that are part of this network. Some of them are very, very well-known, but I want to respect the confidentiality of the group. But every single person in this group that I've had a chance at least to interact with or that I've seen on the Zoom call is a star in his or her own right. With this episode, if you've been listening to the previous three episodes in January, and I encourage you to do so if you haven't, we've had, and this is at number four on the list, very successful women that are really so different, so diverse along so many dimensions. Stephanie Michko Beal, Christine Spadafore, Sarah Matthew, and now in this episode of the Sidcast, Moj Madara. And each of their stories are different, which is what we should expect, of course, right? I mean, having done these four episodes gives me a chance to point out something that I've seen about how people think in general and that just interacting with these four women and having these conversations and learning from them has really made it crystal clear for me. And it's this. When you look at another group, in this case, very successful women in business, women leaders in business, people from the majority tend to lump all of the minority people together into one category. So for people in the majority group, all members of a minority group are the same, more or less. But that isn't true at all. Look, of course there are commonalities among these four women that we have on the SIDCAST, but it's the differences that count. And when we don't work at seeing those differences for ourselves, we're shortchanging others and we're shortchanging how we think. So rather than there being one category for women leaders, even though there are commonalities of experiences to be sure, but rather than having one category for women leaders, maybe we should think about each person as their own category of individual. This is certainly true for each of the four women leaders that we've had on in January. They're each different, of course, but they bring different skills to the table. And of course, they've lived a different uh, life experience. So their commonalities are important. We can learn from them. But that concern or that attention, which seems to be something we do in general so often, it should not overwhelm an effort to view each person as a person, with each person being an individual. You know, this is another one of those false either-or-or choices that's in fact really not about either-or choice. It's about both. There's power and comfort in surrounding ourselves with others who are similar. We know that. But there's even more power, perhaps with some discomfort, but even more power when each of us leans in with our own identity. And so it's not either or, it's not that all women leaders are the same category and we should look at them the same and maybe assume that their life experiences or their work experiences have been the same. Again, yes, commonalities exist, but it's the individuality that brings out these four women leaders, that brings out any four individuals, in fact. And so here are four women, number four on the list. Not in any order other than I couldn't release all four episodes on the same day. So I went one after another for over four weeks. And I wanted to start off 2021 on the podcast exactly that way. Four individuals and recognize both the reality of the fact that these are women leaders and have that in common and some of those challenges in common. And at the same time, these are four individuals and recognizing both of these realities is what smart people do. I hope everyone listening will be inspired. And I especially hope that younger women starting their careers, maybe especially, or early in their careers, will get a glimpse of what's possible when you really go for it. And that's what Moj Madara has done. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein in snowy Hanover, New Hampshire. And my guest today is Moj Mahadra. How are you? I'm good. Hi, Sid. Where are you? I am in Los Angeles. 
Is this the type of weather that people back east, they see this, like the Rose Bowl, remember that? People would watch the football game on uh, January 1st, they'd be freezing throughout the Midwest and the East, they'd watch the Rose Bowl parade in ancient times when we did stuff like that, and then they said, we gotta go there. I definitely think this is a FOMO season for those who do not live in Los Angeles, where people are, especially now that we're in a COVID shutdown, you know, we still have a lot of outdoors activities that you can get to because of the lack of weather, rain and snow. Well, as long as those fires stay away, right? That's been really, really difficult all over the West. Super sad and scary, definitely. Incredible and unfortunately a sign of the future, unless some kind of magical things start to happen. Okay, so let's start with beauty.com. What is it? What is this idea that you've built into this kind of juggernaut at this point? BeautyCon is a platform. It's a community, both experiential, digital. I think of it as almost a pop-up retail experience meant to bring together the world's most diverse brands and communities and artists and audiences to celebrate everything that is good in the beauty industry and evolving. But specifically, I would say through the lens of inclusion and really with a Gen Z angle to it. It's very interesting that it's in the beauty industry or or really ecosystem. It's much wider than that because that's an industry that uh, has not been traditionally particularly inclusive and has been an industry where men running the Revlons of the world that uh, used to dominate. And I remember, I don't know whether you ever met Anita Roddick, founder of The Body Shop, fantastic entrepreneur and woman, and I actually had her come to my class years ago, and she rebelled against all of that and uh, became this kind of real innovator in the industry by doing things differently. And at the end of the day, she ends up selling her company to one of the big players. But her description was that you could sell people on almost anything. And what you're doing, what you're creating, what you're sounds very, very different than that old image of beauty. I think so. But that's really because this generation is charging to reinvent all categories, especially beauty, right? Especially things that have been developed through the male gaze. I think Gen Z really has it out for the patriarchy. So, of course, naturally, beauty is a target for them. So that makes sense, you know, that that beauty would be a category that would be first up in terms of the reinvention. Where did you get this idea from? You know, I'm a huge fan of consumer-facing brands, digital and retail. And I think, you know, ultimately, all of these different things, when you think about Gen Z, like there's such a starvation and, and such an excitement, enthusiasm for community and the re-envisioning. I mean, if you look at sort of what's happened through channels like TikTok or, you know, Instagram, or I mean, there's a bunch of new digital platforms now, but this audience craves community and consumption and has the ability to blow up brands and make them phenomenon so quickly, right? You look at Netflix, you look at Supreme, you look at Nike, even the huge, amazing rebound they've had over the past two, three years as they've gone direct to consumer. Yeah. And so you're talking about Generation Z. It's very interesting because forever we were talking about millennials and millennials, of course, are still such a huge demographic. How is Gen Z different than millennials, do you think? Gen Z, I would say first and foremost, has more of a curated identity, right? So they're not constrained by their geographic demographic experiences. They're able to curate their identities. And they're able to curate their identities based on the content they consume and 
the music they listen to and the social channels they follow. And so I think millennials and Gen X and boomers sort of lived in this very demographic driven world. But I think Gen Z really is the first that is a multicultural the way that they've approached spirituality, they've really curated their identities. They sort of have the similar work ethic to Gen X is what I've noticed, but they have a lightness, a levity, a curiosity that is pretty unlike any other generation we've seen before. I mean, like, listen, that's why we're seeing this amazing outpouring of support in the streets during all of the social protests or around gun reform, prison reform, all of these social issues, I think apathy is not really a part of their daily approach and strategy. They do believe in the concept of emoting power and intention. And so, you know, I find them to be very, very inspiring. It's very interesting because this is an age group and demographic that actually doesn't participate historically in the political process, for example. It's an age-old problem. If only the younger people would vote, you know, it would be okay. And probably even now in the recent election, probably even now, and I haven't seen the data, but I'm sure it's out, a higher percentage of older people vote than younger people, I would have to believe. But what you're saying is that they're so much more engaged, and therefore they're engaged with specifically what you're doing. Yeah. Millennials check their phones like 140 times a day, but Gen Z checks their phone, I think, like a thousand times a day, right? They are constantly consuming content, experience, information, DMs, text, SMS. They're using like six, seven different messaging apps at any one time. So I think they're having a much more intimate relationship in real time to what's going on around the world. Yeah. So how does that play out then specifically for any brand? I mean, you could talk about your brand and what you do, but it could be for any brand. It sounds like they have a lot of power because each person kind of has a dozen weapons in their uh, in their toolkit, each one being a social media type of communication device or interaction. And that you said they're not particularly apathetic, and so they're not going to sit on the sidelines. It sounds like, I'm going to ask you this, whether brands, especially established brands, understand what you're talking about with respect to Gen Z and doing something about it, because that is, as your description is really, it's different than what you usually think of for kind of the youngest or close to the youngest demographic coming into the workforce. No, they do not. They do not. They do not. But you work with some big brands also, right? I I mean, so I know you're not going to say anything bad about clients and... uh, No. uh, But big established companies, maybe one of the reasons they want to be part of the network that you've created and the ecosystem you've created is that you're more in touch with people like that. And they need to know that. I think so. I mean, I think I'm also someone who's invested in a lot of early startups that have been very successful and someone who's always in the middle of incubating and thinking about next generation brands. And look, I don't think a 14 to 25 year old person has had as much influence over household spending, household vacations, what people care about, what they do, who their parents vote for, are they registered, what their political beliefs are. These young people are hungry to not just have their voices heard, but also influence. It's like the era of influence. The generation before them was the era of affluence. And so in an influence model where, you know, a young person wants to be self-expressed and self-authored, I don't know that big brands have even begun to harness 
the power and the opportunity there is to engage with this generation is not just the Gen Z generation, but it's the Gen Z inspired. And so, you know, I see a lot of parents in their late 40s or, you know, 50s, even 60s that are walking around a beauty con or a mall or different events, or I I see them sort of engaging with different social content in a way that they probably didn't see their parents do. They definitely didn't. Of course, those set of parents or the grandparents of the Gen Z, they didn't have the access to those types of things, but they didn't even think about that. Sometimes the technology, when it comes out, not sometimes, usually, it changes how people interact with, uh, and you know, it's like multiple levels of impact. You have a smartphone, of course, a smartphone enables you to do lots of things, but then there's all these second and third order effects that come out that can be almost cultural changes, not just kind of changes in how you behave on a day-to-day basis. And that's pretty uh, interesting. I wonder whether... That was what it was like in the early days of television or transportation. If you go back to the 20s for transportation, all the way up to um, 40s when TVs were starting. That would be an interesting question, actually, to see. I always wonder about that because people always say, well, this generation is different. This situation is different. And yeah, I get that. But a lot of things have happened in the world over time. And to what extent are we talking about something we've never seen before? And to what extent are we seeing a modern version that looks different? but in a way parallels earlier behavior when major changes were going on. There's so many people say we've never seen more change. And it's not hard to believe that, and maybe it's true. I mean, it's a subjective thing. I don't know how you measure that in any ultra-precise way. But then you go back and you look at the changes, Industrial Revolution, that changed the entire world. And you look at changes, as I just alluded to, when the oil industry came into being, meaning uh, allowing automobiles. This has been going on for a long time. I don't know, it's more of a, maybe it's a bit of an academic question to think about, but I've always been a fan of history and going back and trying to see what's different here. I mean, listen, I think it obviously history does repeat itself. You know, I think whether it's electricity or the car or, you know, women joining the workforce, I mean, there's been sort of radical moments in history throughout time. And as that radical sort of snap happens, I think I feel like a whole bunch of change feels like it happens all at once. But in my mind, most of that change has been moving along kind of quietly, gradually. And then all of a sudden, like a moment happens and it kind of memorializes this as like, wow, this was the catalyst for that change. And it's easier to see when we're farther away from it. And, you know, I'm very curious to know in 50 years, like what will all of everything that's gone on today look like? Like the lasting effects of COVID and this vaccine and Zoom and people being at home and not traveling. And it's just going to be very interesting. Looking at the changes that are going to happen pretty much right away is going to be interesting enough in a lot of industries. So just to kind of fill us in a little bit, how does BeautyCon make money? What's the core business model? Yeah, I mean, we have brand partnerships, tickets, data, larger sort of overall corporate deals and larger ticketing deals, some licensing, international licensing, uh, things that we've done, uh, whether it's in the Middle East or in Asia. So yeah, those are the revenue buckets. Yeah. And when you say tickets, so you have these trade show convention, it's some kind of combination of all of those things. And people come and they pay something to be there. And it's a place for people to interact in the community. And I find the idea really interesting. And I'm thinking, I'm going to ask you, where else do you see this idea? Have you seen it somewhere else? Sports. My idea with BeautyCon was to make it the uh, sort of Disney sports MMA kind of I mean, I think guys have a ton of stuff, right? You've got huge gaming experiences, you've got MMA, you've got sporting. I think those are all things, but women don't have a ton of stuff. 
So this was kind of that attempt to eventize, commercialize, and really make it light and fun and energetic and not like something that you do as a chore on the weekends, but make it something that you want to grab your friends and go to with. And so, yeah, I love live events. I love concerts. I love art shows and all of these different projects. And so my intention was like, you know, I mean, I think Walt Disney and Disney are some of the greatest North stars of marketing we've ever seen. And so to think about it through that lens has always been inspiring to me. Right. So the people that go to BeautyCon events, are they participating or are they spectators like in a sports event? This is where I kind of see it differently. The whole concept of like that video cam that comes on people and they're wearing their crazy shirts and they're wearing their fluffy fingers and they're wearing the crazy hats and they're coming with all their medallions and they're like screaming and going crazy. And like the whole concept of fandom and fandom just being absolutely like the ability to be a fan is such a great feeling, you know, like to be able to scream and shout and dance around and express yourself. Like, I think there's like something very magical in that similar to like what people experience in different faiths, spiritual experiences or birthday parties or weddings, right? Joy. It's like license to have joy. I think that's really important. And I think it's important we do that together in large groups with people I think that's kind of the idea and the plan. And so, yeah, the idea was like, how do we build this at scale for not just women, but like everybody who wants to enjoy the beauty and wellness industry? Right. Uh, Very interesting, the sports analogy and your reaction when I said that it's about spectators. And in fact, you do engage. I used to go to CES, Consumer Electronics Show, and Comdex before that. And you're a spectator, but you're also engaging and people are buying and selling and all sorts of things like that as well. Is that part of what you're doing as well? Is there a marketplace that exists where individuals can engage in that? Yep. And I think, you know, the concept of this was to eventually launch us into e-commerce and to become an e-retailer and even experiment with physical retail. And so those were all plans that we had on the docket, but it has been a complicated few years for BeautyCon and even more complicated now because of COVID-19. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. If it's about live events, and I know there are other things you describe that you're doing as part of your revenue model, but live events is, sounds like it's an engine that builds the brand and extends the brand. And you can't have live events or haven't had, I presume, for a period of time. What have you done to kind of keep the momentum going without that? I mean, to be super candid with you, we're sheltering in place. You're holding on until we get to the other side. Exactly. Yeah. I think we looked at virtual strategies and digital strategies, and ultimately we decided to basically just shelter in place until the world goes back to live experiences again. We weren't set up to be able to weather a two-year experiential storm and pivot into digital. Yeah, I don't know who was. It's part of a wider problem of, you know how many conferences there are that are more traditional conferences and meetings, and they have gone on, many of them now, through Zoom and, and other things, and Everyone says exactly the same thing. Yeah, Zoom lets you do a lot of things and you have way more attendance than ever before. I mean, on paper, it's kind of like those old MOOCs, the first courses that came out. You'd see 200,000 people take a course, but in fact, they signed up, but because it was free, they didn't take the course. They didn't do anything. But regardless, you know, some of these conferences now, whether medical conferences, academic conferences, have attendance that is far beyond anything before because there's no friction, there's no cost. Exactly. I mean, listen, I think you look at the rise of Masterclass, TikTok's numbers, YouTube's numbers, Spotify podcast numbers, Audible. I mean, we're consuming a lot of content right now. We're consuming a lot of content. But what's missing from these conferences and events, the digital ones, is the human connection. I mean, obviously, right? 
and the opportunity for serendipity, for bumping into somebody and having a conversation, for meeting someone at a mixer, at a cocktail party, at a networking event, or just sitting next to someone at somebody's talk. I've seen some virtual reality type things where you can go in and it looks like you're in a real place, but it's not even close. It doesn't feel the same, does it? It doesn't feel the same. And you know it doesn't feel the same in, in a way. So we revert back to Zoom. But I wonder whether you and Beautycon may have been or may still be well-placed to kind of reinvent that, given what you've done. I know you didn't want to do that digital shift dramatically. You weren't set up for that. But there's a real market need here in every industry. I think I will probably go on to do something like that. I'm not sure it'll happen within Beautycon. I have a kind of dynamic capital and investor structure that makes it somewhat complicated to do things that are sort of in those new categories. And so if I had to guess, I would imagine those things probably come into fruition in something maybe in partnership with Beautycon or outside of Beautycon. But I don't know that that'll be Beautycon's model per se, but it's definitely within my DNA and within my programming. And that's definitely how I think about things. Companies are complicated, right? Like startups are complicated. I think companies for specifically even people like me who come into this market are learning a lot about what it means to be a successful capitalist and entrepreneur. And so it's not always what you think it is on the cover of like a Forbes magazine or Fast Company. So yeah. Yeah. You've had other startups before this one. I mean, where's this come from? Is it kind of obvious it's just you have to do it. That's who you are. You're an anti-authority type. You couldn't work for anyone else. All those cliches people say that sometimes are true. Why did you go down this path? As opposed to, you know, if you care about beauty and you have the talent, you could move up in a corporate setting to a significant position of influence and success in theory. Nothing's off the table. Listen, if Virgil Abloh can be the creative director for Louis Vuitton, then maybe I'll go work with Estee Lauder someday. I don't know. I mean, it's not out of the question. I think there's two things that have contributed to my repeated entrepreneurial behavior. I think one, I grew up with immigrants that very early age, we were taught not to go work for others. That was not something that they necessarily like, unless you were a physician or a lawyer, which technically are both people who work for themselves, but just are part of a larger network. They were just sort of, that's in my house. Like everyone just talked about being entrepreneurs. And they were entrepreneurs, your parents? They are. They're both entrepreneurs. Yeah. And they support their kids being entrepreneurs. They talked about entrepreneur. I mean, they talked about money more than we talked about feelings, right? Like economics, finance. I understood, you know, what a quick claim and real estate transaction was before I understood like how to express a vulnerability in my emotions. I mean, my parents were hyper-focused in their financial stability. And so I grew up with that. And the other thing I kind of blame is I'm like a Montessori kid. Talk Montessori, about like creative, don't follow the rules. Let's just learn. Maybe there's some truth to that, but there's a lot of Montessori kids that haven't become entrepreneurs too, obviously. But there's something there's about There's a ton that are. There's a ton of kids who've gone to Montessori who are gone on to start a lot of companies. It's like a pack. It's like founders of Google well, and PayPal and a bunch of other people. So that's really we're tactical learners. We like to learn <laughs> by doing. Right. That's really interesting because the Montessori system is so different than mainstream education. Yes. And not just pre-K and K-12 and that type of thing, but all the way up through universities and onwards. So that's very interesting that you said that. Actually, I had not heard that, but now I'm going to look into it because it's kind of a cool idea. And so your parents were immigrants from, is it from Iran? They are, yeah. When did they come over then? My parents came separately. So my dad came, I think my mom came first, late 60s. And my dad came early 70s, oh. and they both got a scholarship to go to Louisville, Kentucky. 
That sounds random. Which was a feeder into the University of Kentucky. So they're wildcats because my dad was studying to be an engineer, chemical engineer. And my mom was in the chemistry field. So yeah, they wanted, at the time, smart Iranians who were in the STEM categories were recruited to this country. There was a time and a place where we recruited Iranians <laughs> and Persians. Yeah, it's, isn't that interesting? Well, you could also say recruited any talented people. I think we may be going back to those days, but we took a bit of a hiatus. And do you have siblings? And are they also entrepreneurs? I do. I have two younger siblings. My sister is a consultant, and my younger sister is also an engineer, and she works with my father at his engineering firm. Okay. Now, you've been outspoken as an advocate for women's rights, for minority rights, and LGBTQ rights as well. And so I have to ask you, I don't know whether it was a conservative family, but every family and every person has their story when they realize who they were and they had to deal with it. You had to talk about it. You had to deal with it. Could you share that story? Because I know there's a lot of people that may very well be trying to figure out their own path. Sure. It was not easy. I will not lie. It was very difficult. I knew I was different from an early age. I knew I didn't fit in. I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb. Ultimately, it caused me to leave home at 16. So I've been on my own for a really long time. I didn't talk to my parents for about nine years. And yeah, you know, my parents are not very, I mean, they're not really very religious people. They're more spiritual than I would say religious, but they were pretty uncomfortable with the concept. And there was no Ellen or Anderson Cooper or, you know. Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, Pete Buttigieg and Don Lemon. and There weren't very many role no. models at all to. no. I think they thought, oh my God, this means that my kid's, you know, a loser. So I think in life, what I've learned is that you always need to give people the opportunity to change. I think the kindest thing you can do for someone that you love is give them the opportunity to change. I always think about that. I think a lot about people who've given me the opportunity to evolve. And with my parents, the most compassionate thing I could possibly do for them is give them that opportunity. And they have done a pretty good job. Took them their own time. Took them a long time. But they are really supportive to my son, to my wife. And I know that they're very proud of me. But yeah, I think you have to lead with some empathy on these categories. Yeah. And there are lots of types of stories. I think every story is unique. No, there's only one story that's your story. But parents that struggle for whatever reason, this is a particular reason, could be you choose a partner that is a different religion. And that's enough to set them off. And there are people I know like that that have, to me, it's a terrible mistake for a parent to make. But some people feel that strongly about their religion and marrying outside of or partnering outside of that religion. It's not allowed. You just can't do it. It's kind of unbelievable in a way. Because parents, I'm not going to say every parent because there's so much variety, but the vast, vast, vast majority of parents love their children very much and want the best for their children. And then they create this rift, not once or twice, it happens a lot. Your advice is wise about you know, giving people time to change. That's actually a very good lesson, I think. But it's just remarkable about human nature. Well, I tried, right? Like I tried to hate them. I tried to make them wrong. Yeah. I tried to live without them. Mm -hmm. I tried to punish them, guilt them. I tried all those things. And nothing was as successful as giving them space for their lived experience. I think every parent wants their kid to be okay. 
I think as an immigrant in this country that comes from a country that is mostly hated by the media and hated by most of our culture, you know, like you want your kid to fit in. So you're like, God, my kid's chosen this lifestyle that's not going to fit in. And how could they do that? And everything we've done to have them have a good life and they've thrown it all away so they can go be gay, you know? And, you know, I think fear and anxiety drives most of people's misunderstandings around each other. And so with my parents, I just tried to have a lot of compassion that they're immigrants and didn't know any better. And now they're like, they're big Pete Buttigieg fans. And that was their choice for president. And they have evolved in a pretty dramatic way from what you just described. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I always give Magic Johnson a ton of credit for the way Magic handled his relationship with EJ. You know, and I think that was like a big breakthrough for my dad. My dad loves sports. Actually, I'm going to ask you just to remind us the story you're talking about with Magic Johnson. Magic has a child named EJ Johnson who is gay. And I don't know. I don't want to speak out of turn to say whether or not EJ is she, but just is gay and gender fluid and gender nonconforming. And, you know, I just think like seeing people in popular culture starting to accept their children, right, as they are proudly you know, made my parents feel like they didn't need to be ashamed of me anymore. And that's sad that that's what they needed, but that's what they needed. Yeah. But when there's so few, and I'll use the word role model in kind of a broad category, but when there's so few role models, and there's so few people that look like young people, and they're looking and they don't see it, it's so, so challenging, so difficult. And this is true across the board. Now, do you think that your story you just shared and, you know, the challenge that you've faced and where you've gotten now Do you think, or maybe the right question is, how has it affected your business decisions and business career? I mean, were you able to compartmentalize them as separate parts of your life, or it was a driver in some way to decisions you've made as part of your business? I definitely think BeautyCon is as committed to diversity and inclusion. And I think my passions around financial literacy and women's equal pay and opportunities for women and women of color within the market have been really born out of that experience. It's very personal for me. And I don't know that it's always good for business, right? Maybe it's just too personal sometimes. But I think, you know, it's hard to shake a lived experience from someone, especially something that shakes someone to their core. It's part of who I am. Right. You know, the word authenticity is thrown around a lot, but there is something to that word that's very meaningful. We are who we are. And when you lead as the person that you are with your history and your background and all the good things and all the less good things, I think because you said it's not always good for business. And of course, it's not hard to understand how that could be the case. But that type of authenticity, that type of genuineness, I think is going to be very attractive, maybe particularly Gen Z that we we're talking about, but to a lot of other people. I think about it now because more and more CEOs are speaking out on different issues, whether it's around gay rights at one point that a lot of CEOs were speaking out on, or some rather, uh, whether it's on, on immigration policy, Black Lives Matter racial discrimination, gender discrimination. You're seeing that. Now, Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurial community, I think, is more out there in terms of speaking up than your typical Fortune 500 type company. But I don't think it's exclusive just to the more entrepreneurial world. And that's a big change. You never said anything like that as a CEO. You'd never, you'd always follow the party line of what your company was about. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't necessarily be supporting Colin Kaepernick for kneeling down when the president thinks it's a terrible idea and many of the NFL owners think it's a terrible idea and you at Nike that's who you choose to support I couldn't agree more I mean I think 
It'll be interesting to see what happens as Gen X comes into more executive leadership roles. I'm very curious to see what happens. What happens as in, will they revert to some old patterns and habits? Because, I mean, there's a lot of money on the table when you move up, especially in big, well, in any type of company, but there's a lot at stake and nobody wants to screw it up. Do you go back to kind of playing it safe? I don't know that that's going to work, actually, because the cat's out of the bag in a way. I mean, look at the reaction of kind of rank and file. If we could use that word for employees at Facebook and Google and other places, nobody really rank and file there. But, you know, people that work in these companies, they're not happy if senior leaders are not speaking out on things they care about. And they're not happy when examples of sexual harassment or racial discrimination come out. In fact, they in a way should be happy that they come out because they exist whether they come out or not. You might as well find out about them and do something about it, which, by the way, is the only thing. I don't know about only thing. Maybe it's too much credit, but it's one bit of credit we might give to the outgoing president. He made it easy for people with bad intent to show their cards. They were hiding before. And yes, he created some additional people like that. But I think he made it a lot easier for people to say who they are, act the way they did, which is bad. But at least we know. We know what we're up against. And they haven't disappeared. Maybe they've always been there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's a bit complicated because it was kind of rocket fuel for a certain population. But in a sense, he gave them permission to say they don't like blacks. They don't like Jews. They don't like gay people. They don't like all these things. I think he was a rocket fuel for every population, honestly. I think for whether you're male or female, he gave permission for the ugliness of, like, I love men and I love women and I love gender nonconforming and I love the expression of gender and identity, but I dislike the patriarchy. And that has nothing to do with my dislike of men because I like men a lot. And I love masculinity a lot. I'm quite masculine, you know? But I think when you have the patriarchy sort of out of hand, and the patriarchy exists both in male and female, everybody in between and everywhere around, right? It's an energy. It's a behavior. It's a way of being. It's a approach. I know a lot of women who approach life through the lens of patriarchy, right? And that is this current president, outgoing president. He is really like kind of the gold standard of that patriarchy. I don't know that that works anymore for society. I have to say I was really on the fence before COVID. You know, I wasn't a huge Bernie Sanders person. I pretty close to Hillary Clinton and Secretary Clinton. And I'd say like more of a moderate Democrat. After COVID-19, I think I've really radically changed my mind around where we're at in society. I think we need some pretty radical changes. And I understand now why so many young people are pushing for these more forward-facing, progressive what I guess sometimes get called socialist kind of movements and changes. I think regardless of your political views, I don't think you can really argue to say that like we're really at a time and a place where like there's just too many people who aren't being taken care of. And I think that's just a function of over-indexed interest in a certain group of people being really taken care of. And a good amount of people are sort of being left out of the experience of being safe and feeling okay and feeling that they have, you know, stable education, they have stable healthcare, and, you know, that they can go for a run in their neighborhood at night and not be arrested, shot, killed, right? I mean, I think we're really dealing with some major, major human issues that probably need to be resolved. And I think including more women, including more specific women of color, uh, including more gender non-conforming individuals in the decision-making tree is probably going to be really like where we need to see society go if we're going to be healthy on a go-forward basis. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know. 
Sometimes I feel well, like I'm like a 26-year-old, <laughs> you know? I hear what you're saying, and I'm thinking, well, what will the reaction be? Because we did definitely see a reaction to President Obama's tenure by a uh, subset of the population. And maybe you can't worry about it. You just got to do what you think is the right thing to do, because there's always going to be a reaction to it. In a way, it's kind of like you follow a strategy of appeasement and compromise, or do you try to accomplish what you think is important to accomplish? Recognize some people are not going to like it. Do what you can to respect them and to hear their point of view. But at the end of the day, there is no space for compromise for certain things. This is actually what I'm saying, I think, is a, almost like a choice you make in so many parts of life. You could talk about it with parenting is the way we talked about it earlier when you have a kid that decides to do something different or live a different type of life. You could look at it in a company and is there a place for compromise or, or not? And sometimes compromise brings you to lowest common denominator and you're kind of wheeling and dealing and you don't actually get a lot done. It's almost a philosophical difficulty here. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's philosophical at this point. I drive to go get a cup of coffee and there's like tens of hundreds of people sleeping on the streets and people are waiting in line for days to get food boxes. And I don't know. I don't know. That's that's real. There's no doubt that that's real. But if you adopt a Bernie Sanders type or Elizabeth Warren type agenda, there are a lot of people going to react very, very negatively. And is that acceptable in your decision making? Is that acceptable? Because you know, you can't bring them on, can't bring them on board. Or would you rather keep them in the tent by not going as far as your intuition might be or your goals or your principles might be. I mean, this is a very common problem, I think. I mean, I think generally most things are two steps forward, one step back, right? So it's rare that you get the joy of walking along and having progress on progress on progress. And so, yeah, I don't know if a radical approach is the answer. I wish I understood how we're going to fix the overall political situation we're in right now, but that's just like a whole nother conversation. But I think... I think the first place you can start is just by having more diverse, inclusive people at the table, right? Like I think in order to have great ideas and great solutions, you need the richness of the diversity at the table. Difficult to have great outcomes when you've got a cabinet of what's that famous picture where like it was like 25 white men were signing that bill to make abortion illegal in like 20 states or something like that. It's just like makes no sense. It's crazy. It's like I think you've got to have a variety of people in the room to have the meritocracy, right? Survival of the best ideas. I think this country was built on meritocracy. It's like built on the concept of like, whoever has the best ideas shall win. But I think people need an opportunity to have a seat at the table to have that voice. And so we have seen, especially when we include women and we include different minority groups, that that seems to always affect positively the bottom line when we do that. Well, the evidence for that's rather overwhelming. It's kind of remarkable that there are any debates about whether diverse teams, diverse talents produce better results than less diverse talents. It's overwhelmingly the case. And in fact, just something closer to home at Dartmouth and Tuck School in the MBA program, over the last couple of years, we have increased the number of women in the program from 35% to almost 50%, almost equal. And what do you think the data indicate about the kind of the objective indicators that ranking organizations, you know, Business Week rankings and all the rest, what do they look at? They look at average GMAT score, average GPA, this type of stuff. And so what do you think you find when you add more women? You have actually uh, higher scores, not lower scores. And this is the thing that is kind of the disconnect that I've seen time and time again. If you expand the talent pool, how is it possible for you not to end up elevating the mean level of talent if you expand that population you're drawing from? How is that possible? 
actually. That, that wouldn't have, of course it's going to happen. But yet it's the reverse assumption. And that gets me to a point, I want to ask you what you think about this, a point around framing that more and more I'm seeing this as a uh, kind of gigantic factor in so many areas. We could look at COVID. How do you frame dealing with COVID and wearing masks? Do you frame it as a question of individual rights or do you frame it as a question of keeping yourself and your family uh, healthy? And you could say the same thing for vaccines. Or on your point on diverse teams, how do we frame that? Do we frame it in terms of affirmative action or quotas? Or do we frame it as let's figure out how to make the best possible decisions we can? The framing game gets lost, I find. I don't think many people on the democratic side, if you will, are as good as people on the more conservative side, the liberal side versus the conservative side, are as good as people on the conservative side in framing debates and questions. And we forget just how important that is. Ooh, I think as long as you have one gender and one ethnicity running everything, you're going to have to really work hard to find ways to get other people in the door. Ideally, you don't really want to have affirmative action, but the numbers are overwhelming me one way. Got to create some framework. I mean, I don't really love these company diversity reports. I'll know how effective it was when we see a sort of real estate or portfolio report around what the net worth is of women of color on a go forward basis. Yeah. Let's look at a metric that's down the line. And that is a pretty serious one. Exactly. Show me women who are successfully retiring at 55, 60 with north of eight figures in the bank and whatever it is, right? I don't know the exact numbers, but I mean, it's pretty easy to know like how people are doing. You kind of look at like medical health, financial health. Are they living longer? Are they disease, you know, getting disease? I mean, this is like, you kind of look at the base factors here to see mm-hmm. how's it going. Yeah, how's it going? <laughs> yeah. Just one last point on this in the firm of action, whether you believe in it or you don't believe in it, when it's framed as something that is controversial like that, which implies for many people that if there are more seats for you of your type, there are less seats for me and my type. And they don't care about history and they don't care about reparations or anything. That's a difficult argument. Even if it's the right argument, it's a difficult argument. Isn't it an easier argument to say diversity wins? Here's how we know this. And don't even use the word diversity. I think we need a better word because now that's so laden with heavy levels of negativity among a subset of the population. I'm not sure what the right word is. You know, my example of this is climate change. It wasn't that long ago that we were talking about global warming. That was the word that was used. And I bet if we did a little study of you know, Google search terms or some such thing, global warming was used all the time. But we hardly ever use that term, global warming. Much more common is climate change. Now, think about that framing. Global warming is very clear. Climate change is neutral. In fact, I think climate change was promoted as an alternative framing by operatives working with Dick Cheney at one point, which tells you a lot about that. So it might sound like a trivial thing, but I think it's a big thing. How we frame anything is really, really important. You know, you think you want to win on the merits of your argument. That's fine. But when we could frame it in a way that gets us starting at second base rather than on the on-deck circle, that's what I would do. That is the power of press and media. And how good are you at that spin? I think all of these issues, I mean, listen, if Donald Trump has taught anyone here, (laughs) how you control your brand, your narrative, your messaging, your positioning on a go for basis is really important. You can say COVID is fake. You can say global warming is fake. You can say the wall is built and have people believe that stuff. You can say so many things. And there's enough media impressions out there that repeat the same message over and over and over and over and over again, I don't know, you'll think like a V8 tomato juice is going to give you all the vitamins you need in a day. It's just marketing. All right. 
somehow a Nike shoe makes you a better runner. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. We'll never know. Dasani versus Smartwater. We'll never know. All of these brand is ultimately, I think, has uh, emerged as the winner of COVID. And what we're talking about here when you talk about you know fake news and all the rest, it's taking this type of brand management, brand development, and applying it strictly to ideas. And it works. It turns out that, if anything, what we've learned is that marketing and branding at a world-class level, it works better than we ever imagined. It's not that it doesn't work, it's that it works too well, which is really interesting. Time always seems to fly by. We've been talking almost an hour, so I want to be able to wrap up. And I, I'd like to ask the final advice question. And the question is actually what advice you'd give yourself if you can go back magically in time to the uh, 21-year-old mode, and you're sitting wherever you're sitting, doing whatever you're doing, and you could kind of come up to her and lean over and say, if there's one thing you want to know, if there's one thing you want to do or not do, if there's something you need to understand about the world or about life, what would it be? What would it be that one piece of advice you give to yourself as a 21-year-old? I think I would probably tell myself, I would say, Moj, you are going to be okay. You don't have to hold on to all of this anxiety about, are you going to be okay? You're going to be okay. You'll be happy. And I would say to her to choose very carefully who she surrounds herself with. And I would tell her, I would remind her that she is the sum of the five closest people to her. And to always be very careful with who you surround yourself with, because we're all very sensitive human beings. And so I'm especially sensitive. I'm, I'm a empath. I'm like an extroverted empath. And so who I surround myself has always been really important. And so I think that's kind of what I would tell myself. Yeah, I asked this question to a lot of people, and I don't think I heard this answer yet, which makes me very excited about that. Especially what you said about kind of the, we are, what, the sum? Of the total? five closest people, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you to elaborate on that a little bit, because it's a cool idea, and I want to make sure we all understand it, we all get it. Look, if you're around people, let's say the five closest people to me are really into uh, reading, eating well, traveling, art, right? You kind of naturally get socialized into those types of things. If the people closest to you are into not taking care of your mental well-being or your physical well-being, or they're hyper-negative on everything, they're uh, Debbie Downers, Hmm. pessimists. You know, I think you've got to really choose carefully people who challenge you, but also inspire you, push you to grow. I think about our dear friend Joni that I met you through. I spent a lot of time with Joni and she's such a smart, inquisitive human. It's like, yeah, some of that really kind of just comes into you, right? You get to think about things differently and look at things differently. And so I think you got to be very careful with who you hang out with because we're all sensitive energy. You know, it's kind of like a rotten piece of fruit. If you stick it with a one rotten piece of fruit and put it in a bunch of good fruit, that mm-hmm. bad fruit will kind of like rot it. Kind of got to be careful with who you put around yourself. We're all a lot more delicate than we think we are. Interesting. Of course, people are choosing us, but we're choosing them at the same time. A thousand percent. I would also say like, I would also tell myself to not be afraid to let go of what's not for me. Yeah, that's hard. But what all of this requires, what you just described is quite a bit of self-awareness, knowing yourself, knowing who you are. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I've learned over time that therapy is generally a good investment of time. Meditation is a good investment. Mm -hmm. Whether you're reading Eckhart Tolle or Pema Chodron or so many amazing people to think about and learn about. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Moj. This is great. I really appreciate you. And I really, really, really appreciate every conversation we've had. I look forward to talking to you soon. Absolutely. Take care. And people will be very interested in this episode.
Yeah, I'm excited about it. Thank you. Everyone stay safe. Happy New Year. Absolutely. Bye. Thank you for listening to the SITCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you Season 2 and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.